This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. When you're estimating others, what you see is what you get. It therefore becomes critically important to see generously, or you will get only what you see. To see sharply, so that you discern the mix of traits rather than a generalized lump. And to see deeply into dark shadows, or else you will be deceived. End quote. That quote is by Dr. James Hillman. Dr. James Hillman was born April 12, 1926, in Atlantic City, New Jersey and died October 27, 2011, at the age of 85, in Thompson, Connecticut. Interesting little piece of trivia, Dr. Hillman was born in a hotel owned by his family. He served in the U.S. Navy from 1944 to 1946 in the Hospital Corps before attending school, largely in Europe. He's got quite the pedigree, quite the resume of institutions that he attended. He attended the Sorbonne in Paris as an English literature major, He then transitioned to Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and studied what was then called mental and moral science. Now it is called single honors philosophy. It's quite an interesting read into that. If you're so inclined, you can visit the Trinity College website and see what is contained in that curriculum for single honors philosophy. But that is what Dr. Hillman studied when he went to Trinity College. And then, finally, as if two European institutions were not enough. He studied at the University of Zurich, where he earned a PhD in philosophy, and then actually ended up being a director of the institution there. And he has an interesting pedigree, not just in education, but also in who he trained under. He studied under Carl Jung, and he's a very famous philosopher and thinker for his day and age, and Jung studied under Sigmund Freud, who most of us know for his Freudian slips and Freudian logic and and a lot of those things. So there's an interesting pedigree there, Freud to Jung to Hillman. And Hillman is most well noted, and I didn't know this because as I've said a hundred times before on most of the topics that we discuss here, I am not a psychologist. I did not study mental and moral science or single honors philosophy, and I certainly don't have a degree in psychology. So he popularized something called archetypal psychology. And archetypal psychology is image-based uh, around motifs and, and primordial images that Hillman and those that subscribe to his psychological perspective would say are what shape us as human beings. And I read a little bit more into this, and I found a very interesting quote. Now, this is not today's quote, obviously, but it is worth worth a read. So I'm going to read this to you, and this is... This is Hillman's summation, I guess, or at least a summation that Hillman gave that speaks to what archetypal psychology is. It says, For Hillman, the psyche manifests itself through imagination and metaphors. Quote, Each life is formed by its unique image, an image that is the essence of that life, and calls it to a destiny. It has much to do with feelings of uniqueness, of grandeur, and with the restlessness of the heart, its impatience, its dissatisfaction, its yearnings. It needs its share of beauty. It wants to be seen, witnessed, accorded recognition, particularly by the person who is its caretaker. Metaphoric images are its first unlearned language, which provides the poetic basis of mind, 
making possible communication between all people and all things by means of metaphors. End quote. And I think that's interesting. And if, if that lost you a little bit, it did for me as well. It took me a second to really kind of chew on that. And what I found to be the most interesting of that, and it speaks to something that we've talked about on this podcast before, is that an individual's life has a desire to be seen, to be witnessed, accorded recognition, particularly by the person who is its caretaker. And that's an interesting thought, and we can go down the philosophical and psychological rabbit hole for a moment here and think about what that means. I mean, we've talked about people's desire to be important, people desire to be seen, people desire to have profound thoughts, to leave a mark, to be significant in ways that most of us just simply won't be. And, you know, that's not a, that's not a doom and gloom perspective. It's just a, it's a natural reality of there being, you know, some 8 billion people on the planet is that most of us will disappear into obscurity. But we've talked about this before. There are ways in which we lend significance to those in our immediate orbit. That would be our families, our friends. To them, we are important. To them, we leave a mark. And if we think about it in, in the purest sense, does it matter if we're remembered three or four or five generations from now? Probably not. So we make our impacts in our immediate orbit. And that's, that is and should be sufficient for most of us. Most of us will not, I, I, I think of the Olympics because they're, they're going on right now. I, most of us don't need medals to our name. We don't need a Wikipedia article about us. We don't need a gymnastics move named after us. And most of us just simply won't. But that doesn't mean that we can't have impact. But the most important person to have impact on is ourselves. And that'll be something that we'll touch back on here. What Hillman would say is that we are composed of these images. There are, there are images across time. There are archetypes, if you will, across time that define the human existence. And that is why, regardless of what language you speak, what country you're born in, or what time frame you're born into, there are certain archetypes of humanity that are common. There's the hero, there's the victim, there are all of these different archetypes, there are images, there are images of greatness, and the collection of those images and their proportion in our particular psyche is what defines and what makes us unique. You may have a touch more hero in you than victim. You may have a touch more philosopher than laborer, or, or whatever those archetypes happen to be. And I'm, I'm using broad archetypes, and they're probably not even necessarily ones that Hillman himself would ascribe to, but... If you think about those things, if you think about these images and these these powerful motifs throughout human existence, you can see how there. if you were Hillman and you devoted a lot of time and thought to this far more than I have in, in researching or even recording this episode, that you may come to the conclusion that they're more definitive of the human psyche and what, what Hillman would call the human soul than a lot of things. And he references a lot of religious images as well when he talks about the human soul and the definition of the human psyche and the human character and the the reason why humans behave in the ways that they do. He talks about gods and goddesses and, and relics and, and things of that nature. And if all of this is sounding a little bit woo-woo and disconnected for you in your mind, that's fine. It, it still does for me as well. Like I said, not a psychology major here, trying to make sense of a foreign subject in the best way that I know how. And that's kind of the way that that I can kind of understand what Hillman was getting at here. So he has this archetypal psychology idea, and it's based around these motifs or these images, these artifacts that 
he says are common to the human condition and in different proportions are what define and differentiate human beings from one another. And to that end, as I mentioned, he has this idea that he those collective images and those collective archetypes and ideas create what he calls the soul. And in 1997, he wrote a book called The Soul's Code, In Search of Character and Calling, which sounds like the perfect book for a listener of this podcast, myself included. What an interesting idea, In Search of Character and Calling. And in that, he talks about the soul as an amalgam of images and shapes and archetypes, right? So you take all of those common threads and common archetypes and common images from humanity, and you boil them down in the individual person, and you get that individual soul. And that soul is unique from every other soul. And within that, he has what is called the, he describes what is called the acorn theory or acorn model of the soul. And yes, I'm talking about an acorn like that falls out of a tree. And what he says with that is essentially that all the potential of of, of a human being is contained in that human being at birth, much like an acorn has all the potential and all the needed components to create an oak tree. And so over time, as an individual grows, as the soul of that person is manifest, as those images and archetypes in their various proportions come to the surface and are made manifest through their life's pursuits and their goals and their dreams and their efforts and their successes and failures, that that soul is is shown, right? That's the acorn. That is the, the potential of that human coming to fruition. And this is interesting because to a certain degree, it runs counter to at least portions of the nature versus nurture idea. This is much more a nature argument than a nurture argument, although I think Hillman, based on my readings, would have rejected the idea of a nature type of thing, because I think that would be too much, too generalizing of people, too much grouping of people into a, a, a pile for ease of explanation. So he he really would have struck out against the idea of heavy parental influence, right? He was much more of a nature, I suppose, proponent um, in this idea of the acorn soul than a nurture idea. His his argument would be that, that parents have this outsized impression of their effect on the people that they raise, and we have an outsized appreciation or respect for the impact that they, they have. That actually what's happening is not that our parents are influencing us to think or behave certain ways. Certainly there's probably some influence there, but what that really is, is that is the manifestation or the coming to fruition of that acorn inside each of us. All that potential is coming out. And it may look a lot like our parents are doing it or that we are following our parents' lead on things, but really that was organic to us. That was organic to us as people, and that's why we think the way that we do. And if I have a psychology major out there, especially somebody who's studied Hillman and has an appreciation for this topic, I would love to hear um, your thoughts on the matter. I think it's I think it's a fascinating area to enjoy. And this is one of the things that I enjoy immensely about this podcast is that in researching for this, I, I find the words. I don't know where or when I came across these words from Hillman. It was certainly many years ago based on how far buried into my book it is. But I came across these words at some point. And I wrote them down, and they are significant on their face. And then they're interesting enough that I that they make the cut. When I go through the book and I thumb through the pages and I look for a quote to share with you all, I found this one. And again, it's interesting on its face. It's valuable as a standalone set of words from a person who I couldn't have told you who James Hillman was. He was just the 
originator of the quote. So his name goes on the page right under the quote itself, and that's all there is to it for years and years and years. And then when I finally make the selection that this quote is going to go into an episode, I start researching, and then I learn about James Hillman, and I take a look at psychology. And as is often the case, this served to highlight a huge knowledge blind spot for me, that of psychology. It is just an area that I know of. I've seen movies of, I've probably read excerpts on the topic, but I am not a psychologist. And so to see this quote and to have it take me down this rabbit hole serves to highlight a blind spot in it. And it makes me go, well, I need to do some research. I need to do some growing. I need to do some reading in this area. And the way that I know that this is a blind spot, this is normally how my blind spots manifest, is when I can clearly and easily be persuaded to any one side of an argument but I can't necessarily articulate or discern the drawbacks of any of the sides. So in this case, I can look at it and go, well, nature versus nurture. I've always thought that, you know, nurture was a, a big part of it. I always thought that our parents and our society and the people we grow up around and the people we interact with have a heavy impact on us. You know, there's there's that saying that there you are the combination of the five people that you spend the most time with. And if you've never heard that, think about it. Think about your personality and then think about the five people with whom you interact the most. That could be your family, that could be five friends, it could be coworkers, friends, some combination of those groups. And then think about your personality, the jokes you make, the stories you tell, the manner in which you behave. And you can see why people would say that. So I go, well, okay, so nurture is certainly a big part of why we are who we are. Well, Hillman would say that, eh, not necessarily. What you are may be somewhat influenced by that, but more importantly, it's about what was in you when you were born, what that potential was when you were born. And I don't know what his thoughts are on achieving beyond your potential. I don't know how you measure what someone's potential is at birth. You certainly have to probably look for analogs, and I would assume those would be your parents, right? If your parents are of a certain level of affluence and intelligence and capability, certainly you would think that that's at least a starting point or some kind of metric for a child. Which again speaks to the nurture piece, but Hillman would say that you possess inside of you all the potential that you will have for your life, and making it manifest is your life's pursuit. And so I can see both sides of these arguments, and I can't really necessarily say that there are, I, I know there are drawbacks to both. The drawback to the nurture idea is you have no control, and that sucks. It's just kind of, life is what you get. It's who you interact with, it's who you talk to, it's who you're raised by, it's who you work for. That determines who you are. You have very little control over a lot of that. So I can kind of see the drawback there. And I guess the drawback to the Hillman piece is how do we measure potential? How do we know that he's right? So this is how I know that I have a knowledge gap because I, I can be persuaded to believe either of those schools of thought, assuming that there's just those two, which I know there's not. And yet calling out and differentiating between them in terms of pros and cons and f arguments for and against is not something I can do. So this to me is a knowledge gap. This is an opportunity for me to learn. And of course, psychology appeals at least superficially to most of us. Why? Because it helps us understand people, including ourselves. And who doesn't want to be able to do that, right? Who doesn't want to understand why somebody behaves the way that they do or why they didn't do this thing or why they did do that thing? And that brings me back to Hillman's quote. So I'm going to read it for you again, because it's a great quote, and it's the subject of the episode today. So here it is. Hillman says, When you're estimating others, what you see is what you get. It therefore becomes critically important to see generously, or you will get only what you see. 
to see sharply so that you can discern the mix of traits rather than a generalized lump, and to see deeply into dark shadows or else you will be deceived. End quote. And perhaps the most interesting piece of this to me is the word estimating. It's the easiest to overlook because we move into the rest of it and he starts with this wonderful trifecta of directions that we'll talk about in a second. But he uses the word estimating at the very beginning of the quote. So when you're estimating other people. And it's an interesting choice of words for a couple of reasons. One, it implies an imperfect knowledge, which, of course, when you're talking about another person, you are not that person. So by by design, your knowledge is imperfect of that person. Everything you are doing is an estimation of that person. So that's a, it's a good use of the word in that regard. And the other piece that's interesting is it implies the potential for error, which I think is also a very interesting thing, is that you can go through this whole process, and even if you do the things that he talks about that we'll touch on in just a moment here, you can still be wrong. And that's okay. So he's saying, you know, this is, this is a process of estimation. This is the jar of M&Ms on the counter that you have to try to guess or estimate the number of. There's a chance you're off by just a couple. There's a chance you're off by an order of magnitude or more by, of how many M&Ms are in that jar. It's that old, that old carnival game. And the chances of you getting it exactly right are almost zero. And if we keep that in mind, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go about our daily lives, because we must recognize and should recognize that no matter how discerning we consider ourselves to be, we never fully know the motivations and reasons and ideas and experiences of a person that we're interacting with. So there's a potential for error. But then what Dr. Hillman does is he tells us how to reduce that error. So he says, hey, this is, a, this is an estimation, which implies the potential for error, but let me tell you how to avoid some of that error. Again, not all of it. It's not, a, it's not possible to reduce the error to zero, especially not when it comes to other people. But he says three things. He says to see people generously, to see them sharply, and to see them deeply. And each of those means a very specific thing, and they're each very important and must be done together to get a more accurate picture of another person. To see someone generously means to assume the best. And that can be incredibly hard to do when we're talking about difficult people to interact with. Assuming the best in another person, assuming the best of intentions, meaning that person is not necessarily purely evil. That person is not necessarily purely out to get you but that you assume that that person is motivated at least in some way by good intentions. Now, they may not be good intentions towards you, but they're probably good intentions towards someone, even if that someone is themselves. So be generous, because otherwise you will only see what you get. If you only view that person as pure evil, everything that they do gets put through the lens of pure evil. Think of the person that you loathe the most in the world. Whoever that person may be, whether it's a TV personality or a politician or a, a former lover or a former friend or whatever, think of that person. And now try to think generously about that person, right? It's, it, it takes effort, right? And that's a common theme that you'll see throughout each of these is they each take effort. But try to see that person with some good intention, What, whether that's towards you or themselves or someone else. There's somewhere in there that their intentions theoretically should be good. So see them generously. Next, he says, see them sharply, which means 
again, differentiating, and this goes back to the soul piece and the archetypes and all of the pieces, and you can see how somebody that 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 espoused archetypal psychology would would call on people to do this because the tendency is to generalize, right? The tendency is to group people, to make things black or white, to say that it is only nature or nurture. Well, Hillman says, no, there's actually a third option, right? So don't generalize. See the people sharply. See this other person as unique, which of course you want because you know yourself to be unique. You look at yourself in the mirror and you think to yourself, I am unique. I have a unique set of circumstances and a unique set of experiences and thoughts and motivations and they make me unique. Well, so too with every other person. So we owe it to them to try to see them as a unique individual, not to generalize. And again, this can be difficult and requires effort. And lastly, he says to see them deeply, which implies the need to spend time and thought on that other person. Again, this goes to not generalizing, not grouping, not minimizing or reducing someone. This goes to taking time to see down to the depths of a person. And if you do that, then seeing them sharply becomes easier. Those two kind of go hand in hand. And of course, generalization, stereotyping, mass attribution are a lazy person's heuristics, right? And we are better than that. You're, the fact that you're listening to this episode and you've heard me drone on about this psychological analysis of other people means that, I think, you yourself want to be better. So we must be better than just generalizing and stereotyping. We, we've got to be better than that. And I would argue that something Hillman doesn't say here, Hillman talks about estimating others. I would argue that this applies to estimating others and ourselves. And stay with me here, but I think it's a fair thought, but not necessarily appealing to think that we may not have a perfect understanding of even ourselves, right? Which I know sounds crazy, right? Nobody, nobody understands me as well as I do. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you perfectly understand yourself. You understand yourself better than anybody else, but even your own estimation of yourself has the potential for there to be inaccuracies. Now, that being said, the self-serving and selfish behavior that we have, and I'm not talking about these in the pejorative sense. This is, these are not negative things. It's just that you think about no other person more than you think about yourself. Right? You think about when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you need to change your shoes, when you need to take a walk, when you need to go to sleep, and you make adjustments and tweaks to your life to do those things in ways that you don't do for any other human being. Now, I can hear the parents out there jumping up and down, throwing their headphones and whatnot. Well, I do that for my child and my child dictates. Yes, but even then, if you think about it, there are times where you choose yourself over your child. Child screaming and you take a deep breath and you know, set that aside and, and do something for you. It, it happens, right? It's not a bad thing. Again, this is not pejorative. This is not meant to be an indictment. It is meant only to say that we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. We think of no one more than ourselves. And so if you're willing to accept, and I think you should be, that we have even a potentially imperfect, although closer than the average, view of ourselves, how much less can we know others about whom we think even less. So what I mean by that is if you spend the bulk majority of your time thinking about yourself and doing things that are self-serving, not in, again, not in a negative way, just things that serve you, then who's the person that you do the second most thinking about and serving of? Perhaps it's your spouse, perhaps it's a sibling, perhaps it's a child, and third and fourth and fifth. And, and what Hillman is, Hillman is talking about here is estimating others. And so I'm, I'm thinking of people outside of that specific orbit. 
you know so little about the average person that you interact with on a daily basis. You'd be astonished. That's why conversations are so interesting, because you learn things about people that you don't know. And of course, you know all of your experiences and all of the things that you've gone through and been through, and so you, you have a pretty good understanding of yourself. But I think what's important here is to recognize that if we have an imperfect view of even ourselves, then we have a much, much less potentially perfect view of others. So it becomes increasingly important to abide by the recommendations of Dr. Hillman. Be generous, be sharp, and be deep. Because only then can we really begin to understand another person. And each of those things requires effort. It is, again, it is the lazy person's heuristic to generalize, to stereotype, to say, I've met one, I've met them all. To say, oh, I know that person. Or to say, oh, I know your opinion about this topic. Therefore, I know your opinions about these others as well. And I know why. It's because you're evil. Or it's because you're lazy. Or it's because you're stupid. Those are generalizations and stereotypes that don't serve to make us better people. They serve to make our lives easier at our own peril. So as we depart today, and as we wrap this up, I think what Hillman would say to us were he here would be to be generous, to be sharp, and to be deep in your estimations of others and of yourself, and you'll be better for it. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.